The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about protecting Indian River Lagoon in Florida with Dr. Lisa Soto. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Rob. Thank you so much for having me today. Lisa is the Executive Director of the Marine Resources Council. And where is that located? We're located in the city of Palm Bay, right on the beautiful, scenic Indian River Lagoon. And uh, we had a little difficulty making sure that you were online. What's, what's going on down there? It's raining. So... <laughs> When it rains in Florida, I guess uh, things happen. We're down to one phone line today. Uh, I was worried that we, I w- we wouldn't even be able to have this conversation, but it looks like uh, we're in luck. So I'm really pleased to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Well, I understand a colleague has loaned you a cell phone to call for the engineer to dial if you can't we get disconnected or something. <laughs> right, right. Well, teamwork is what it's all about, and the other issue is that uh, – a lot of the work that you're doing and, and the work that River Institute is trying to do with you guys stems from the fact that you get heavy rains in Florida and things tend to wash off. Yeah, that's certainly the case. On average, we get more than 50 inches of rain a yeah, year yeah. in the state, and different areas of the state get a lot more rain than other areas. Um, most of it happens in what we consider to be our monsoon season in the summer, so all winter long, we kind of wait around for the rain, and then it comes, and, and it's usually cold and wet and miserable, and we're not happy about it. But you know, the first few minutes we are, yay, it's raining. That first flush of rainfall, though, washes you know, months' worth of sedimentation and pollution and oil and grease and all of that stormwater uh, pollution right into our receiving water bodies. So you know, I work in stormwater management and trying to reduce the amount of pollution that's being washed off into our rivers and, and uh, estuaries. Yes, you've just completed uh, studies recently and a Ph.D. Uh, from the University of Central Florida. Uh, tell us about um, your work there. Uh, thank you. I'd love to. My, my interest in, in the research really came from a desire to understand sources of pollution I've been an environmental educator working in public education for a number of years, and I really wanted to be able to evaluate the effectiveness of education programs by determining the extent that each individual or each population of individuals has on impacting water quality. So to do that, I kind of had to go step by step from 
you know, what, how much is one person polluting a certain pollutant? And they, my research was on nitrogen, on lawn fertilizer. So how much does a person apply nitrogen to their lawn, for example? And then how likely is that nitrogen to run off? And then if an entire suburb or community was to do uh, what they typically do, what would the um, expected pollutant load to be, at least the expected nitrogen load to be? So I worked in different areas of the state of Florida to collect information on um, residents' fertilizer practices, the amount of fertilizer they typically apply, how that would relate to a nitrogen load, and how changing their behavior would result in a reduction in that nitrogen load. So you would hide out in bushes and watch people push spreaders around or something? Yeah. You know, we tried to no. get some drones to do that, but <laughs> apparently there were some... <laughs> Yeah, the president's using all the drones these days. Some institutional controls that wouldn't allow us to do that. <laughs> but uh, we, t- we, uh, we did do some observational studies, but for large areas, you know, you can't really watch everybody every- no. all the time. So we would use uh, survey means or telephone surveys, uh, door-to-door surveys, and you know, ask people what they're doing. And at the same time, also looking at sales records and trying to piece together the information based on the evidence that we could collect in the course of Yeah, I would think sales would be a good source because you can't trust people to be truthful, but failed numbers don't lie. Right. So we would kind of do, do both and see if, if we could, if they made sense. Yeah. And what did you find? Are, are people... Um... Well, we found that um, contrary to, to what some people believe, people aren't applying as much fertilizer as, as it has been implied. Like a lot of times, I think the industry likes to point fingers and say, it's those do-it-yourselfers. They're just, you know, spewing fertilizer everywhere. And, and what we found really wasn't, wasn't the case. So we found that people were very conservative with their fertilizer use, at least they reported they were, that they, um, they, they are generally lazy. You know, they don't want to fertilize every month or three times or four times a year. You know, your, yes. your typical homeowner only wants to fertilize once. What he wants to know is, you know, what little, what's the little, the least amount I can do to keep my lawn looking decent and that I can get away with year after year. Sure. Why waste, you know, your recreation time spreading on fertilizer? You don't have to. Right. And then on the other side, we found that people who lived in homeowners association governed communities, of which we have many here in Florida, that they are bound to a contractual agreement to maintain their property values, and part of that agreement requires the lawn to look a certain way. And depending on how restrictive their contract is with their homeowners association, they are more likely to hire professionals to kind of offset their liability to that contract, meaning that if their grass turns brown, they're going to have to replace it. They might be fined by their HOA. So they hire a a, um, professional, and they say, I'll pay you, you make sure my grass doesn't turn brown, because if I get a fine from my HOA, you're going to get a fine from me. So in a way, they kind of offset their own responsibility to their HOA by hiring a professional to, to serve them, to serve their, their lawn maintenance needs. Mm. So the HOA kind of sets a, a precedent for being for the sustainable landscape. I mean, if HOAs develop a landscape regime that could... Uh, require more sustainable plant materials, for example, plants that don't need as much water and as much uh, nutrients to be added to keep them looking good 
and keeping property values stable, uh, then the HOA as a governing uh, development pattern can really set the stage for a sustainable landscape. Yes, they certainly can. And so that's what you mean by responsible stewardship. Yes, that we all have a, a part in that. So, you know, the individual and how he selects, you know, where he lives and the, uh, the governing body of that community have, have a, a stake in, in, in stewardship as well. And yet, well, in our earlier program, we had Dr. Edie Witter um, on uh, Moyers Environmental Dialogues, and I was surprised by her findings that the golf courses are really doing a good job and that she was finding the healthiest, um, you know, marine life off right in front of the golf course. And it's so easy to blame ag businesses and so forth for the problem. Are you finding that to be true in, around the state? I was, I was just shown a, a data set last week that kind of corroborated that finding that, um, that showed that they had collected some nutrient data in canals, and this was down a little farther south than I'm located, where, you know, it's like very, very high nutrient values in the canals, as you would expect. But then the canals that came off the golf course had very low nitrogen values, and I was amazed. And they said, oh, they're using these new best management practices, which is, you know, that have been taught to them by the state of Florida and others who are trying to um, to keep golf courses green, of course. I mean, golf is a big industry in our state and uh, without impacting the environment. So I'd like to, to think that golf courses are doing that all over. Um, our findings in, in one area of the state, near Wakaiva Springs, we installed groundwater wells and we also collected um, land use data and then some behavioral data and we found the groundwater well that we installed that had the highest nitrate concentration. It actually had nitrate higher than drinking water requirements, the drinking water standards, was right in the middle of a golf course community. Uh-oh. So I'm not sure, you know, that that's reflective of all the golf courses, that they're all doing best management practices, or if, you know, certain ones are doing a better job than others. Well, could that have been contaminated by um, septic systems or something? Uh, it could have. We also collected isotopes, and isotopes have uh, of the um, the isotopic signature of fertilizers. We would expect to be a little bit different from wastewater, mm-hmm. and although not conclusive, it, it looked more indicative of an atmospheric source or fertilizer source of nitrogen than it did of a wastewater source. That's a good check. I would think that it would be in the interest of the uh, golf companies to. Uh try, like we were talking earlier about the homeowner who doesn't want to do it more than he has to, that there'd be a financial interest in trying to figure out, you know, the proper amount and not wait, because fertilizer ain't cheap. Right, and I, I think it also has a lot to do with them, their willingness to a, try a different type of turf, because mm. some turfs really can't survive in some areas of our state at all without being plugged into a nutrient source. And golf courses are all about the turf, green, right? Oh, they <laughs> sure are, nice green. green. Holy smokes, yeah. So I think that's part of it, too. But I, there's a big effort, and I think the golf courses are really showing that it can be done. If anybody can keep a nice green turf grass without impacting water quality, uh, and they can do it, anybody can do it. Yeah, this is it. So when you're asking lawn owners to improve their practice, you're only asking them to, to be like the golf course 
the best practices of golf courses. Right. And so that is doesn't sound outrageous because the homeowners want to improve or maintain the value of their properties, and that's the best value is to have a, a golf green in your house. Yeah. So how do we go about helping people uh, do it right? Well, I think that education is important. It, I think it's Im- also important to have governance, to have our governing policies, whether at you know the community level or the city or county level, support uh, a fair um, action. That there be you know yes, everybody recognizes the need to have a landscape that's both sustainable in an environmental sense and an economic sense. You know, nobody wants all the grass to die and turn brown. That would also be a stormwater nightmare, quite frankly, if everything yeah. died and all the sediment washed off into our receiving water bodies. You know, that's not good either. So, no, so the first priority for the homeowner is a green lawn. The first priority of the homeowner is probably a green lawn. It depends on the individual. Right, but, okay, an association of homes, so, you know, and yet, we can do both, right? We can have cleaner water and... I, I think so. And I think that, you know, if we develop a fertilizer that you could have put down one time, like a slow release, you put it down in the spring when the rains are somewhat lighter and it, it works for the next three months to feed your grass instead of, you know, putting it down right in the middle of the rainy season when we're going to get deluges of one and two inches of rain an hour and it's all probably going to run off its surface water and through, run off across the surface of the land. You know, that's that's uh, would be one good practice, would be to put it down in the spring, have it be slow release, let it feed your grass all summer long. You don't have to worry about it. You can be sipping your tea in your hammock <laughs> and watching the rain and not worried about having to get out your fertilizer spreader and do all of that kind of things, which, you know, you don't want to do in the summer in Florida. Well, what do you say to the people that say, well, the grass grows the most on June 21st. That's when you should fertilize. Um, I say it's uh, 87 degrees out and, 80, <laughs> you know, 99% humidity. Do you want to give yourself a heart attack? Um, I think um, well, and you were saying grass, you can when use... the grass starts to grow, that's when you want to give it something to eat. When it starts to, to grow, right. Not when it's at its peak growth period. And uh, I think the other good message as far as grass growing rapidly is how many times a week do you really want to mow your lawn? Mm. Because I'm not sure about how frequently you all mow up north, but down here in the summer, the lawn needs to be mowed at least once a week, sometimes twice a week. It just grows like crazy. So putting fertilizer on it when it's growing like to the point where you have to mow it twice a week is asking to mow it three times a week. Yeah, interesting. Here in the Northeast, daylight has a lot to do with it. So the longest day of the year, we get, you know, a lot of grass activity. And then it changes. The cows all know this. It tastes different on the next day or th- next week or so because it starts thickening instead of lengthening. Huh. Um, I didn't so, know that. I never tasted the grass. Yeah, so the... the uh, the dairy cat, dairy farmers will, will explain this. They watch it very carefully, and so they have to move their their milk-producing cows um, to a bigger pasture so there's more grass because the, the blade growth just stops the 22nd pretty much. And uh, so it's it's a big day on their calendar. It's June 21st or whatever that happens to be the longest light day of the year. 
um, our calendars may slip a little more than the grass does or something. Interesting. Uh, but the, the key is, you know, it's like you eat a good breakfast so you can make it to lunchtime. You know, it makes sense to feed your lawn in the beginning of the growing season to get through the, the, the season. Tell us a little more about what is slow-release nitrogen. What What is it? Yeah, I mean, what does that mean? It's usually encapsulated in a coating that kind of breaks down slowly, releasing the the nutrient over time. So and it tends to need having, moisture to do that. You need moisture to do it. So every time you'd water the lawn, it would um, help dissolve the coating a bit and help bring out some more of the nitrogen or something? Exactly. So that's like instead of feeding your kids a big breakfast in the morning, feeding them a modest breakfast and handing them granola bars to get through the day. So yes, <laughs> just like that. So so that's something we can do is use uh, and and other choices. Is it either slow release or not, or what are the options there? Uh, is it slow release or not? Yeah, well, there are a lot of other options of what what you can purchase to put on your lawn. Well, some really, of the bags say slow release, but they're not that slow, are they? Or they're not that um, good? Because you can have like 50% slow release or 20% or 100% or... Yeah, I think the, the most you can get is 50% for the lawn. Ah. Uh, and I, that's what I would go with the highest percentage of slow release you can get. Put it on in the spring and... And then you're done for the year. Right. And But do check the release level, because if they say this is slow release and it's only 5 or 7% slow release, you're kind of wasting your money. Yeah, and I'm not, I mean, I'm not an expert on fertilizer blends, so I would just look for the highest number. Right. The highest mm-hmm. percentage slow release time nitrogen. Yeah. I'm talking with Lisa Soto, and we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization 
dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking... We're talking about protecting the Indian River Lagoon in Florida from nitrogen pollution, and my guest is Lisa Soto, Executive Director of the Marine Resources Council. Uh, Lisa, how can people learn more about your work and get in touch with you and stuff? Uh, We have a wonderful website. It's at www.mrcirl.com. Dot org, and my email is my first name spelled L E E S A at M R C I R L dot org. That should do it. So again, the website is M R C I R L. So it's like Marine Resources Council Indian River Lagoon dot org. Correct. Oh, it's just the letters. That's right, and our phone number is area code 321-725-7775. And, and, and hopefully it'll work. I just saw the AT&T truck pull up, and I'm like, oh, no, they're going to disconnect the phone. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm afraid you're not standing today. by, that you're using the only phone right now. Yes. So if someone were to try to call in, the line will be busy. Yes. You have to wait till after the show until she hangs up, and then they can call you and that would uh, get be great. the inside scoop on um Saving Indian River Lagoon from Nitrogen Pollution. Yes. So we've been going over the steps of what's involved. We, we understand that nitrogen is a terrible pollutant of oceans. And um, oh, I guess we better back up. So what's wrong with nitrogen going into the ocean, Lisa? Uh, well, nitrogen is a, it's one of the, the primary producers' foods, which is a good thing unless you give it too much food and then, the whole kind of primary production community goes crazy. And then with uh, ecosystems, also there's a, you know, there's a natural, um, you know, I hate to say balance because the ecologists always go, there's no real balance, but that there is. I mean, there's there is. a point yeah. where you, you over-encumber the system with too much of something. So I, I like to use the, um, the metaphor about... Uh, like to, to think about carbon, and the problem with what we've done with the carbon cycle is we've taken carbon out of the ground in the form of fossil fuels, and we've burned it and put it into our atmosphere. So now we have this carbon problem in our atmosphere. Well, what we're doing with nitrogen is we're taking it out of the atmosphere by fixing nitrogen and creating ammonium for fertilizer, and we're putting it all over the ground where it's dissolving into our water, groundwater, or surface water, and running off into our oceans. So we're, in effect, taking it out of the atmosphere and putting it in the water 
just like with carbon, we're taking carbon out of the ground and we're putting it in the, in the atmosphere. But unlike carbon, we've been, well, maybe it's similar, but it's just, there's been a huge rise in the amount of nitrogen that we've allowed to escape into natural systems. And I was surprised to learn that uh, fungal infections are becoming a reason for animals going extinct. And that only in 1990 was when the first species of animal, a Polynesian land snail, went extinct due to a fungal infection. And now 80% of the extinctions of diseased animals and plants, I guess, are due to fungal infections. And viruses are responsible for 1%. So I guess bacteria are the other 19% or something. And you know, the scientists who are commenting on this say, oh, and look, the temperature globally has gone up by a couple degrees. But I think that the burden of nitrogen pollution has gone up more than the temperature has, and that that may be more of a driving force for those things. Um, who knows? But the, the bottom line is that we got to be – we shouldn't pollute. It doesn't matter whether it's carbon or nitrogen. If it's, you know, don't put too much of it into the system or you're causing trouble. It's pretty basic. Right. Um, so we want to stop nitrogen going in to the ocean waters because it's feeding the algae. And uh, we had uh, Chris Costello from Sierra Club on last week on the last episode, and uh, she was explaining, you know, the specific algae that eats the ureic nitrogen from fertilizers is the preferred food of the critters that cause the red tide to bloom on, off the coast of Florida as well. And we don't like having red tide. So there's many, and then also the nitrogen causes the algae to bloom to become a harmful algal bloom and to eat up the oxygen and can lead to hypoxia or dead zones. Um, all of these are tough situations for marine life, I'd imagine. Yeah, Chris is, is wonderful. She has been such a crusader in our state for encouraging proper nitrogen um, application rates in our fertilizers, for advocating in policy arenas at the state and local level to get policy in place to try to uh, reduce the application of nitrogen in particular and phosphorus uh, in, in landscape materials and, and so on. I mean, she is an outstanding individual. She's a wonderful person to work with. We've had the opportunity to work with her here in Brevard County. Um, and she's, uh, she's been a, a real advocate for proper use of, of nitrogen and, and reducing the use of nitrogen in the landscape. Yes. And uh, so we, we did have a, an effort in Brevard County where we asked that the county or many, many groups asked of the county commissioners to consider a three-step ordinance that would the three steps being don't fertilize during the summer months, uh, use at least 50% slow-release nitrogen that we talked about, and um, respect the buffer zones or setbacks. Uh, we haven't said much about the last one. Um, what's that all about? Uh, the, so the last part about kind of having a buffer area around yeah. water bodies, it suggests that uh, fertilizer that's applied at the surface can run off. Not only can it kind of soak in and leach through the soil into groundwaters that are more likely to, to be connected to a receiving water body, like along the lake shore or the, the lagoon shore, 
um, but also that it could run off directly from the land surface into the receiving body of water. And even our, you know, we use a lot of retention ponds and stormwater management in Florida where they, they'll build a, you know, they call it lakefront property, but it's really just kind of a burrow pit that turns mm-hmm. into a retention pond that's used for stormwater management. And the idea of the retention pond is really to reduce nitrogen that might uh, outfall from the retention pond. The retention pond would be connected to a pipe where it eventually would overflow in a heavy rain event into your creek or your tributary anyway. But you would hope that while it's retained, the water in the retention pond would denitrify. The nitrogen would be taken up by different organisms or it would go into the biomass or Mm. it would be atmospheric, you know, go back to the atmosphere and so on. Well, if you were fertilizing right up to the edge of our retention pond, we're potentially just throwing nitrogen right into it anyway. So, you know, we want to have a setback. We want people not to fertilize so close to the edge of their retention ponds, uh, so close to the edge of our actual real water bodies, our creeks and streams and lagoons and so on, in hopes of providing that buffer area to keep fertilizer from ending up in the water. Yes, I talk to people all the time, and they go, well, I can't afford to live near the ocean, so why do I need to worry about it? And it's like, well, there are waterways, right? So there are places, you know, everyone lives near um, near waterways. or There are so many ways that your lawn can wash into uh, waterways that lead to the sea. So it's important that we don't let the water, uh, don't let the, the fertilizer, the nitrogen, into the waterway, wherever it may be. Sure. And that, I mean, people certainly don't know or realize the stormwater infrastructure, that the entire town that they live in is subterraneanly linked to a receiving water, like the plumbing in their house is linked to their wastewater treatment plant. I mean, it's just a direct line. In Florida, We our stormwater goes directly into, if if not, the tributary into a retention pond, which overflows into a tributary. There is no treatment of stormwater in our state. We can't connect our wastewater and stormwater lines because, you know, we get 11-inch rainfall events occasionally. And if that was the case, the wastewater treatment plants would all overflow. So we don't we don't have connected lines here. Right, because this... Like, are you getting overflows happening to, with today's storm or yesterday's no, storm? No, today's a nice, it's a nice rain. It's a nice saturating rain. Oh, okay. And I just went out and figured out where I want my rain garden. <laughs> I'm like, this will be the perfect place. Which rain gardens are a good mechanism for homeowners to use to slow the flow of water from in their yard. What's a rain garden? It's a little depressed area in your yard that you would plant with plants that have very deep roots that... Um, would encourage uh, water to go down instead of flowing across the surface. And, you know, okay. turf has a tendency to has very shallow roots, and it's kind of on top of the soil. It doesn't really encourage penetration of water down into the soil. Mm. And a rain garden would be a planted area, almost like a plant bed. And you would put plants in it that can handle water, a lot of water at, a to- at some times, and they, they would have roots that go down that would encourage rain to percolate through the soil instead of running off across and carrying all of the nutrients with it. And then you have permeable surfaces all around them so that they can get the water down there. That's right. Yeah. And you can make them very pretty, much prettier than just green. You can make them all different colors. So the Marine Resources Center is located on the shore, between the shore and uh, a 
holding pond? Is that what you call that? A retention pond, yes. A retention pond. We have pond. A, a lovely lake right in front of our front door, and the Indian River Lagoon is what I look out my office window and see, mm. right in the back. It looks like the ocean, but it's really the lagoon, except you do see the other side, I guess. So. Yeah, here it's about a half a mile across. The mm. lagoon gets quite large, and up further north it gets to be about a mile across. So it is a big lagoon. People here, we call it the river. Like, are you going out in the river this weekend? Um, but it's not a river. It does not flow. It kind of sits, and then it gets blown one direction or the other by the wind, but it's certainly a lagoon and not a river. Yeah, because it's pretty much closed off from the Atlantic Ocean, except maybe down in the southern portion or something. Right, and I think there's only one natural inlet to it. The others have been um, created by man, like the Sebastian Inlet is a very um, mm. famous surf spot, and it was it was a man-made inlet. And then uh, up at the north end, we have um, Cape Canaveral, which everybody's familiar with, the space industry and NASA and all that is up there, and they have an inlet for their port as well. And then it goes all the way down to Fort Pierce, where I think is there's a natural inlet at the St. Lucie River. Um, so it's it's really a huge system. It's about 155 miles long and encompasses five counties. Brevard County is, has the largest coastline along the Indian River Lagoon, and that's where we're located. We're in central east coast, central Florida, kind of right where the nose sticks out. That's part of Merritt Island and Cape Canaveral is the nose part of Florida on the east coast, and that's the Indian River Lagoon. And we have a problem because it's a closed it's a more on a closed water body than some other parts of the state. So it's harder for the seagrasses and marine life. It, it is. It's a problem because it doesn't circulate. It's like a big pond, a huge pond, and it has all these jurisdictions that between the, you know those five counties and I don't know how many dozens of cities have used it as their final receiving water body for everything, wastewater, treatment systems, and stormwater infrastructure, and direct connect street runoff has all run into the Indian River Lagoon for decades. So, you know, just this accumulation of, of muck and sediment and nutrients and everything, it doesn't flush out. No. So it's just kind of sitting in there um, waiting, <laughs> being stored. And not, not, nobody cleans it out enough. I mean, there are, we have the channel that needs to be dredged regularly, but there's a, what they call the historical legacy of nitrogen is just in the form of, in some cases, feet and feet of muck in the bottom of the Indian River Lagoon. Plus so what can... we want is no more of that being added to the lagoon. Like, we already have enough legacy to deal mm. with. But can we stop the flow? Can we cut off the source of these nutrients and sediments that are going into the lagoon before they get there? And I think that, you know, they've been using certain stormwater um, capital improvements like baffle boxes that can trap sediment Great. and leaf debris and kind of gross solids, as we like to call them, um, before they get there. Uh, but the dissolved things like nitrogen, nitrate, ammonium, you know, the phosphorus no. that's dissolved and other dissolved uh, chemicals and pollutants, they do not get trapped in baffle boxes uh, that are really meant to, to trap solids, not liquids. Right. So the, the only way... They captured and, and maybe used for compost or something, but that's right. the liquids, they're, they're just gone. 
Yeah, and there's no way to really capture them. I mean, there are some methods. The best way to take up nitrogen is through vegetative material. So, there are, you know, that's, again, the retention pond idea where you can have a retention pond and you can grow your own algae and harvest it or grow your own cattails and pull them out or grow things that are going to take up the nitrogen, turn it into biomass, and then you remove it, use it for compost. It's kind of taking it and putting it somewhere else and getting it out of the water. Yeah, and then you've got major muck coming down from Okeechobee. Yeah, down in the south end of the lagoon, the lagoon is directly connected via canals to the Lake Okeechobee, which has been, you know, the disposal for agricultural chemicals and fertilizers for millennia, for, you know, 100 years or more. Throughout much of the center of the state, and it's going into Indian River, River Lagoon. Right. There's a lot of, of, uh, of canaling of the state of Florida just to keep it dry, you know, a lot of yeah. the state is naturally wetland, and that was all um, channeled 100 years ago to, to make room for the agricultural, um, in, you know, the industry that was to come down here and turn Florida into something profitable and not just a big swamp. And what happened to the oranges? I mean, I grew up, Indian River grapefruit were the best ever, and now I don't see that kind of citrus production going on. I think um, that it's still it's still around. When I go down to Indian River County, I always stop and get grapefruits. Oh, good, good. I'm so glad to hear that. I just looked the wrong direction or something. They, um, but, you know, what was funny is back in the 80s, the, the frost line in Florida moved south. Yeah. And I saw all the oranges die, yeah. and they moved farther and farther south. And now I guess maybe with, you know, Climate change, it's going to be moving north again. I'm, I'm not really sure, but I but still think be the best the fruit in would... the world is right here in, in the Indian River Lagoon. We have the best citrus, and every winter I can't wait until the, the groves open up again. Mm. Oh, good, because I do love that citrus. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, so, so we need to go into the uh, government regulatory well, actually, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back and talk about um, what uh, Lisa Soto and I and others are doing to protect Indian River Lagoon. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization 
dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking today about protecting Indian River Lagoon. And we've talked about this on other programs of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. And if you'd like to catch up on some of those other conversations with other people who are working very hard to protect Indian River Lagoon, I invite you to go to oceanriver.org. That's our homepage. And then at the top, you'll see the word audio. When you click on that, and you'll have a listing of all the different programs that you can choose from um, with little descriptions on each one. So I invite you to check out OceanRiver.org. Uh, with me today is Lisa Soto, who is the Executive Director of the Marine Resources Council. Uh, Lisa, how can people learn more about your work and get in contact with you? Thanks, Rob, and thanks for everything that you do to protect the, our water systems in the United States and the world. I really appreciate all your efforts. Um, people can, can reach me at my email address, which is my first name spelled L-E-E-S-A at M-R-C-I-R-L dot org. And our website is www.mrcirl dot org, standing for Marine Resources Council, Indian River Lagoon dot org. Yeah, that's great. I recommend the website. It's very interesting uh, because you're doing so much more than just nitrogen pollution. I mean, I'm thrilled that MRC found you to be their executive director because you bring so much experience on the nitrogen pollution problem. But uh, I see that uh, among many of the things you do, uh, or MRC does, one is water quality. Can you tell us a little bit about your water quality programs? Yeah, we, we have a very comprehensive approach to protecting the Indian River Lagoon, and we focus on um, several main initiatives. One of them is a water quality monitoring network that we've had in place now for 22 years at Marine Resources Council, and we've engaged hundreds of public volunteers in monitoring the water quality in the Indian River Lagoon. They've collected four parameters weekly for 22 years. So we have an amazing data set um, on uh, water quality indicators such as turbidity, dissolved oxygen, temperature, and pH. And then we're working right now to align those indicators with a more, uh, a little bit less dense but equally comprehensive data set that's been put together by the Water Management District that has nitrogen and uh, phosphorus and other 
pollutant indicators. They're trying to align our data set with their data set to see how they relate. So I think that, you know, our data that we've collected from volunteers has been very useful. Absolutely. I've, I've seen that happen in many places, that it's really important to have eyes on the ground to see what's going on, if only to alert the authorities of changes that are happening. And yeah, I mean, I, besides just data, which, you know, as scientists, we love data, it's also, you know, this tremendous value of engaging people in something that they love and they want to, and they do, they watch how it changes over time. They call us and they're like, I see slime, I see this, you know, they were some of the first people that noticed when we had the super bloom last year, we would get calls about changes in color or new, you know, visual indicators of something going wrong. You know, it's like they become more involved in something that they love. That's eyes on the ground. And mm-hmm. do they... Do they walk out on docks and lower the secchi disc in or something? Or Yep. They have either some of them are lucky enough to live right on the lagoon where they just walk out in their backyard or into a, you know one of the tributaries leading to the lagoon where they walk out onto their dock yeah. and they, they take their tests there. Uh, we also have fixed points where we want to make sure we get good representation of the lagoon right. so where people have to go out to a public boat dock or a restaurant dock, and they, they take the sample there. What I like about that is that your people are interacting with the public. And I, I did a program like that in Salem, and I got a call from one of the volunteers that he couldn't go out to Winter Island and stand and measure the salinity and stuff in the tide pools there. So I'm out there in my coat and tie measuring this stuff, and a news, a Channel 7 news truck drove up and said, do you know there's a terrible pollution problem in, in Salem? What do you have to say about it? And um, he finally got me to say I wouldn't eat the clams in Salem Harbor, and so that was a sound bite. But my, my other sponsors were furious that I hadn't invited them to come to the uh, press release because they assumed that no one goes out monitoring in a coat and tie, you know. <laughs> the important thing was that this news team was looking for someone to talk about an issue, and they bump into your monitors because they're out there in the public on, on docks and so forth. Yes. And, and then fact, I imagine our more sustained uh, locations are the public ones and not the private ones because you right. can imagine if somebody sells their house, then the next homeowner may not be willing to, right. to take the sample. So. so double advantage there. Right. Um, I bet you've seen some improvements in technology, too, so that maybe some things can be done by these volunteer monitors. Yeah, there are some amazing tools now, and we've been debating whether we wanted to, to change our, our mechanism for data collection or just stick with, you know, a consistent uh, sampling method. So, you know, because once you change technology, then you have to think about whether you can compare your data and so on. But, yeah, but I meant like you can add on new things besides those four that you mentioned or something. Yeah, and we do, I meant to mention salinity. We do, we do salinity yeah. testing as well, which is very important for the lagoon. The amount of fresh water it receives and the, you know, the shellfish uh, aquaculture, which is an industry in the Indian River Lagoon, is very dependent on, on the salinity. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm it's a good that, indicator of health. Yes, I'm told that the... Indian River Lagoon has the greatest diversity of animal species of essentially anywhere in North America or certainly of estuaries. And I was told it was because um, the southern portions, it's a tropical climate, and up where you are, it's more temperate. So you've got two different kinds of a boundary between two different climates. And then 
as you said, the salinity fluctuates so widely in, in the lagoon as opposed to, you know, off of Sandy Shore or something. So aren't you fortunate? I am. I mean, I have seen some, like, mola mola in the lagoon. This I was diving near the Sebastian Inlet, and I, a huge shadow went over me, and I thought it was a boat or something, and yeah. I looked up, and it, was, and it had a big eye, and it was looking at me, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's a mola mola. Those I mean, fish are so funny. They look sawed off or something. That, you know. Yeah, but that we also get these like pelagic species that just kind of like swim in to forage and swim back out again. And the mola mola is one of those. You don't expect to see them. In the, it's kind of a is. giant plankton. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's its own plankton, and it chases other plankton to eat. Yes. Very slowly. Um, another program you have there, you've been doing a lot on shoreline restoration. That's right. Yeah, we're just hopefully going to start mapping how much of the lagoon shoreline we've touched as an organization. We've been working on restoring the shoreline in the lagoon for decades. And, you know, things like shoreline uh, revegetation and removing exotic invasive species. We are also, I guess, unfortunate to have a very high number of exotic invasive species along the Indian River Lagoon, also because of that climate boundary. Mm. We can get species that are coming down from the north and the ones coming up from the south. They seem to kind of converge right here along our coastline. So it's a never-ending battle. Anybody that's had to deal with exotic invasive plants and the removal, it just it doesn't ever end. You remove it, and then you go back and you remove it again and again and again. So there's a, you know, a lot of effort in removing exotic invasive species and replanting the shoreline with a species that's um, conducive to holding it in place, like red, white, and black mangroves and sea grapes mm. and, you know, the appropriate grass species. And um, soon probably going to be getting back into seagrass planting because we had a major seagrass die-off here in the lagoon the past year. I'm not really sure. You know, the scientists are mulling about how that happened. I happen to think it had just something to do with the nitrogen imbalance. Um, but I but think, yes, because you know, you're seeing stuff growing on the blades of grass, and you're, you're seeing evidence of algal growth, aren't you? Yes. And now yeah. they're all gone. I mean, now you go out in the Terrible. lagoon, and there's vast areas of sandy bottom that used to be seagrass beds, and it's just kind of creepy. Like, oh, my gosh. You're going to have you some know, hungry green turtles. How is this going to affect the other marine life that could kind of, you know, use the seagrass as, as, their, as their food source? Yes. And all of the, um, the, the fisheries, you know, mm. a lot of our big tarpon and, you know, even uh, ocean species come into the lagoon and use the lagoon as its nursery. And those nursery fish really rely on the seagrass habitat as well. So it might be a couple of years before we really see the, the fiscal impact of the seagrass die-off on the area. They, yeah, I was they, saying near Sailfish Point and all the talk is about sailfish and, you know, they're not going to be able to attract those sail fishermen and so forth if, and tourists and so forth if uh, the nursery's all gone. It's true. I mean, the latest, the most recent estimate of the economic value of the Indian River Lagoon that I saw was over a billion dollars a year in revenue was brought in. And a big chunk of that is from ecotourism and fisheries and the use of the lagoon for sports fishing. And, you know, it's yeah. hard to, to know. I don't know that people value it in those terms here. I mean, we see it for its, its beauty and the pastoral uh, values that we, we hold dear as a place that we love. But, you know, the economic value of the lagoon is 
is there as well. Yeah, those deep sea fishermen and those sport fishermen, they bring big wallets full of money to get out there and go for their fish. It's an important driver of the economy. Yeah, we're like the red fishing capital of the world. People come from all over the world to to fish for redfish in the Mosquito Lagoon, which is part of the Indian River Lagoon system. Yes. Um, and whales, you have a volunteer network working on whales. We do. So, you know, the great thing about the Marine Resources Council is that we have so many people engaged in our projects. And one of the other really neat projects we have going on is monitoring for right whales off the coast here in Central Florida. The right whales come down in the winter to calve, and they swim right by our beaches. And we have people living in high-rise condos along the beach that are part of our regular volunteer network. And they, they call in and let us know if a right whale is sighted, and then one of our scientists goes out and confirms the sighting. And mm. then pretty much all the way from Georgia down to South Florida, we have people who are watching these whales go by. Like I just heard Julie's our coordinator, and she's like, I hope 16374 comes by today. You know, like she's got, she knows all the whales by name. I guess there's only a couple of hundred left, which is so sad. You know, such a beautiful creature to yes. miss you know, if, if, they, if they go extinct. But um, so it's a very exciting time. In the winter, we're all, like, all about the whales. And are we going to get to see a whale this year? And everybody, you know, is on looking for whales. This January, we had a right whale in Cape Cod Bay give birth Aww. because of the nuclear power plant had warmed the water enough. And uh, so that's very hopeful that because um, they come here in the spring usually, like in April, to, to start feeding. And, and uh there's so few right whales that we need every single one is a blessing. It's so great. Yes. We're getting short on time, and I want you to, to kind of wrap it up with um, telling us about the Lagoon House and your plans for that and why people should come visit you. Oh, I would love to have people come down and visit. The Lagoon House is a large educational facility. It's where my office is also, so hopefully I'll be here when you come. And we have educational displays. And I'm, you know, I'm seeking right now uh, some sponsorship to improve our displays and make them even bigger. We have, uh, we're situated between two um, indigenous middens, so like kind of Indian mounds, mm. so to speak. Um, so I want to do an archaeological dig display, and then, you know, we're seeking um, sponsorship to do an, an audio display where sounds of the lagoon, where people can hear the different species and the sounds that they make, and. And then one, the one that I'm uh, really excited about is the land-water connection where people can go to a touch screen and they can use uh, a geographic interface to see how water quality and land use change has happened over time. So by seeing you know, kind great. of on the map how land use has changed and then associate that with our water quality and the data set and the data sets of others, you know, how has water quality changed over time, I hope will really drive home the message of that it is land-based activities that are causing water pollution. So um, the, the moral is to, um, to protect Indian River Lagoon, we need to change and modify our land-based activities. Yes. And Lisa Soto, I want to thank you for taking this time to talk with me on uh, this uh, Moyers Environmental Dialogues. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Until next time, thank you all for listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Thank you.
Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Dr.